You're listening to the teaching podcast of Praise Community Church in Mason City, Iowa. For more information about our church, please visit praisecc.org. sought our permission uh, to come uh, to speak to our congregation, and I was like, really? Wow. I would yield the pulpit to that man. So I am so honored to have him here uh, today, and uh, he is not here on, on uh, behalf of his son, uh, Ted Cruz, most of you know, uh, who is a sitting senator from the great state of Texas. Um, also, he is in the process of running for uh, president, um, but that is not why he is here. He is a pastor. He is an evangelist. Uh, he has been doing that for a long, long, long time, long before uh, Ted ever went into Congress or sought to, to run for the presidency. So this is not something that he's doing to generate interest or uh, notoriety for his son. He's doing this because this is the calling on his life. Uh, he is a man uh, who I think is going to share a little bit about his background, uh, who was born in Cuba um, under a very repressive regime there, um, and he was imprisoned uh, for uh, his uh, lack of support uh, of that uh, regime. And so he knows something um, of what is starting to stir the seeds that are being planted in this country um, for dictatorships, for uh, just lawlessness, for just a lot of things that, that uh, he's starting to see that are coming. And, and it's not just his point of view, it's his history of, of, of being in Cuba, of being watching what that... Uh, what they did there, and starting to see shades of that. And so he's here not on behalf of his son. He's here because he wants to talk about the greatness of America. He wants to talk about a, a nation that was founded upon Judeo-Christian um, beliefs uh, by godly men. And that, that we, are, we are at the, the closest point we probably have ever been to all of that unraveling. And so he is coming to talk about the pillars that made this great nation and what he can do to restore and to reinforce and to fortify those pillars uh, in our country. And so uh, he did ask for permission uh, to share one story about his son, um, and he shared the story with me, and I said, absolutely, you share that because it is not political, it is spiritual, and it speaks to your son's witness, his testimony, and his faith in Jesus Christ. And so uh, he is going to mention one story uh, relating uh, to his son, Ted. Uh, he did that uh, with my blessing uh, because I think it's a great story. And again, it just really uh, tells a lot about um, uh, Ted's character and, and more so uh, Raphael's character as a father because I've heard, I've heard you speak uh, many times and I know uh, what you have uh, done to train up your son in the ways of the Lord, and you're seeing uh, the fruit of that. Uh, and there's nothing wrong uh, with testifying of that. We fathers need to be strengthened by testimonies like that of what it is to be able to build into our sons and our daughters a testimony of the Lord. So I'm so honored that you are here this morning, and I just invite you uh, to come and just to speak the word of the Lord to us this morning. Would you welcome Pastor Raphael? Cruz. Thank you. 
Thank you, Pastor. Thank you. I am going to pray for this man. If, you, uh, if you're comfortable, just stretch out your hands, extend those toward him as a way of just standing in agreement with me. Father, I just thank you. I thank you, Father, that you would just come now. Just have your way. Holy Spirit, you say that you are the one who leads and guides us into all truth. So, Father, I just pray now by the power of the presence of the Holy Spirit, you're going to just uh, be stirred up in this man. And, God, I pray, Lord, that the words of his mouth, the meditations of his heart, would be found to be acceptable, to be pleasing, that, God, it would bring forth to the hearers this morning edification, encouragement, and comfort. And so, Father, I just pray a prophetic mantle over him you, right now. And, Father, I just ask, Lord, you just to release a fresh move of your spirit upon him. Open the eyes of our heart. Enlighten our understanding. Give us ears to hear what the Spirit of the Lord is saying through him. And Father, we exalt you, and we ask now that you be glorified in all that is said and done here. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Amen, amen, amen. Well, bless God. I am so blessed by being here. I tell you, I was so blessed in the worship service. You know, there, there was a song that was sung saying, I know who goes before us. I know who stands behind us. And that reminded me of Isaiah 58, 8. Isaiah 58, 8, that's that great chapter about fasting. And it says in verse 8, your righteousness shall go before you and the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. You look at 2 Corinthians 5, 21, it says that he, God, made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be made sin for us that we may be made the righteousness of God in him, in Christ so our righteousness is Jesus Christ, and the glory of the Lord is the very presence of God, that Shekinah glory. So Jesus goes before you, and the glory of God is right behind you, and you are like a sandwich in between. Hallelujah. I'll tell you, that's enough to just rejoice in the Lord. Well, I want to share with you a message that the Lord gave me a little over two years ago. Let me uh, just give you a little bit of uh, story. I was actually here in Iowa, in Ames, Iowa, a little over two years ago. And I heard a statistic that really burdened my heart. The statistic was made uh, right after the 2012 election by George Barna, who does surveys among evangelicals. And he said that in the 2012 election, there were 12 million evangelical Christians not registered to vote, and another 26 million that didn't vote. That's a total of 38 million evangelical Christians that didn't vote out of an estimated total of 89 million. That's about 40% of the body of Christ that did not even bother to vote. We get what we deserve. And I want to show you today, both from a biblical standpoint and from a historical standpoint, our responsibility to be involved in the civic society. Next slide, please. The Bible says, for no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is already laid. That is Jesus Christ. Next slide. And this slide we need to look at from the bottom up. When we begin on the foundation of Jesus Christ, and that foundation starts that moment that we surrender our life to Christ as our Lord and Savior and Master. 
And then we begin to walk in accordance with his word. We call that in America a Judeo-Christian ethic, and I will be talking a little bit more about that in a few minutes. And then the fruit of the Spirit begins to manifest in our life. Love, joy, peace, and the rest of it, which really is the character of Jesus Christ being manifested in and through our lives. And then God gives us a purpose in life, a direction in life. We no longer walk around aimlessly through life, but we have a purpose in life. And I would say if there is anything that characterizes the life of a Christian more than anything else is that we live a life of contribution. I don't think there is a higher calling in the Christian life than for us to invest our lives into the lives of others. That is the heart of the Christian life. The net result of that lifestyle is a free society with respect for the individual. Next slide. The Bible also says if the foundations be destroyed, what can the righteous do? Unfortunately, the world has set up other foundations. I want to talk to you for a minute about the most prevalent of those foundations, and that is secular humanism. Next slide. Secular humanism basically says there is no God. You are your own God. So, of course, on the that setup, there are no moral absolutes. As a matter of fact, their mantra is, if it feels good, do it. So that society is characterized by a lot of immorality, a lot of debauchery, a lot of chaos. The real challenge is that secular humanism has crept into a lot of churches across America. And there are many churches in America preaching what I call the social gospel. They're trying to look more like the world with the excuse of attracting the world. The problem is when people come, they don't see anything different because they talk and act just like the world. And those churches lose their impact upon society. Now, there's another terminology that we have been hearing a lot for the last six, seven years. And it's this concept of social justice. I mean, it sounds so good. Who would want social injustice? But what is social justice? Where does that terminology come from? Well, it comes right out of Karl Marx. Social justice is collectivism. It is the rights of the group. It denies individual responsibility, which is the biblical concept. And instead, it divides society into a series of smaller groups. It makes each group seem like a victim that needs a handout. Now, let's think about this for a minute. These people don't believe in God, so they cannot rely upon God. Individual responsibility is destroyed so there is no self-reliance. So if they cannot rely upon God and there is no self-reliance, the only thing left is to rely upon almighty government. So it creates this dependent society. I think one of the saddest things about this dependent society is that it kills the dream. One of the greatest things about America 
is the American dream. This is a country that with hard work and perseverance, all your dreams can become a reality. Nowhere else in the world is that true. But yet, this state of dependency makes these people feel that they can't do anything. You remember our president a few years ago saying, you didn't build that. Well, I don't know about you. I've built everything I've had with it by the grace of God, but not by the help of the government. See, Ronald Reagan put it very well when he said, government is not the solution. Government is the problem. We don't need more government. We need less government. But anyway, these people feel trapped. They feel like they are in a circular treadmill that they can't get out. So as I said, it kills the dream. That means that this state of dependency becomes permanent. And not only that, it continues to grow and grow and grow. And as it grows, they are controlled more and more by a totalitarian regime that accepts absolute control of the, their lives. That is the definition of socialism. Next slide. Now, unfortunately, for many years, the church has been totally silent. And they got a series of excuses for their silence. One of them is separation of church and state. I'll tell you, I know the Constitution very, very well. I know the Declaration even better. Separation of church and state is not in the Constitution. It's not in the Declaration. Where does it come from? Well, in order to understand this, we have to go back about 400 years. If you were living in England in the early 1600s, and you were not a member of the Church of England, the Anglican Church, you were considered a heretic, and you were persecuted. That's what brought the pilgrims to America. They came here to seek the freedom to worship Almighty God. Have you stopped to consider what a wonderful heritage we have in America? This is the only country on the face of the earth founded on the Word of God. How dare anyone say that this is not a Christian country? This built country was built on the Word of God by men and women that came here to worship Almighty God and have the freedom to do so. Now let's move forward a couple hundred years to the time the framers were giving us this constitutional representative republic. All 13 colonies were concerned as to whether this new government was going to impose on them a state religion like their forefathers had fled from 200 years before. All 13 colonies were concerned. The Danbury Baptist from Rhode Island wrote a letter to then President Thomas Jefferson expressing that concern. And in order to appease their fears, President Jefferson writes a letter to the Danbury Baptist. Next slide. I want to point out three things on this letter. First of all, Jefferson says, believing with you that in matters of religion is a matter which lies solely between man and his God. That no one has the right to interfere. Very clear. That's only between you and God. Nobody has the right to interfere. Number two, he says that their legislature should make no law respecting an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. In other words, Jefferson quotes 
verbatim the First Amendment of the Constitution. And then he says, thus building a wall of separation between church and state. If you look at those three statements in context, it is absolutely obvious that Jefferson is only talking about a one-way wall. A one-way wall to prevent government from imposing a state religion upon we the people. A one-way wall to prevent government from interfering with our free exercise of religion. In no way, shape, or form could you infer that Jefferson was saying that the church should not have an influence upon every area of society. As a matter of fact, the Bible tells us exactly the opposite. We should be having an influence upon arts and entertainment, upon the media, upon sports, upon education, upon business, upon government. Jesus said, occupy till I come. Next slide, please. Now, let's just go through a little bit of history over the last 50 years or so. In 1962, the Supreme Court decided to ban prayer from schools. There may be some here old enough to remember when we prayed before school started. Well, that became illegal after 1962. A year later, in 1963, the Bible was banned from all public schools. Now, that one is a very interesting one because did you know that one of the very first Bibles in America was printed under the auspices of Congress to be the principal textbook in primary schools, high schools, and universities. It was so for over 150 years. And then in 1963, the Supreme Court decided that the Bible was bad and it became banned from all public schools. But here is the sad thing. In spite of these two horrible decisions, the church remains silent. Their excuse, it's a political issue. How can you call prayer a political issue? How can you call Bible study a political issue? But that's exactly what the church did. You know what the consequence was? Teen pregnancy skyrocketed after 1963. It has increased over 530%. And so did violent crime. All because of that silence. Next slide. 1973. Nine unelected justices of the Supreme Court decided that a baby in the womb did not have that unalienable right to life from our creator as stated in the Declaration of Independence. And they legalized abortion. Again, the church remained silent. Same excuse. It's a political issue. 58 million babies have been murdered by abortion in America since 1973. God help us. We as the church of Jesus Christ need to fall on our faces in corporate repentance for the sin of abortion. The blood of 58 million babies cries out to God like the blood of Abel did. Next slide, please. Just recently, June 26 of this year, the Supreme Court rendered an opinion stating that Homosexual marriage, according to them, was the law of the land. Now note, according to the Constitution, Supreme Court cannot make laws. They can only render opinions. All right? But they basically said 
homosexual marriage is a right. As a matter of fact, they use the 14th Amendment to justify their ruling. Now, this is very ominous because by using the 14th Amendment, they are saying that homosexuality is a civil right. The next logical step is for a homosexual to come to your church and demand to be hired, whether as pastor or as janitor is immaterial. If you say to that homosexual, I'm sorry, I cannot hire you, it violates our statement of faith, you may be slapped with a civil rights discrimination lawsuit on a basis of homosexuality. The same may be true for Christian schools, for parochial schools, for Christian ministries, for private businesses, even for private individuals, like happened with Kim Davis just a few weeks ago in Kentucky. Now, Kim Davis did not violate any law. In the state of Kentucky, there was a constitutional amendment passed by the will of the people. It is a part of the Kentucky state, legislature, uh, state constitution that states that marriage is only between a man and a woman. So Kim Davis was obeying the constitution of the state of Kentucky. Furthermore, the state of Kentucky passed what is called a RIFA ordinance, which says that you must provide for religious accommodations for people of faith. For example, a Jewish person cannot be forced to work on the Sabbath because it violates his religious belief. A Muslim truck driver cannot be forced to transport alcohol because it goes against his religious belief. A Christian scientist cannot be forced to seek medical attention because it goes against their religious belief. Why are they singling out Christians? It is really not an attack on religion. It's an attack on Christianity. I have a photograph on my phone about Kim Davis in shackles with a chain from one ankle to another, another chain around her waist, obviously going to a set of handcuffs which are covered with a piece of cloth. I have only seen that, those with extremely violent criminals in court. She didn't look very violent to me. This is tyranny. But again, the question is this. Next slide. How long are we going to remain silent? How long are we going to remain silent? But there is a much more important question. And it is this, are we going to have to answer to God for our silence? Pastor Dietrich Bonhoeffer in Nazi Germany said, silence in the face of evil is evil itself. He also said, not to speak is to speak. Not to act is to act. You see, our silence shouts very loud before the Lord. Next slide. Now, here is another, another excuse, and I have heard this excuse from many well-meaning pastors. God just called me to preach the gospel. And they use that sanctimonious stone. God just called me to preach the gospel. Well, I answer them with another question. Next slide. And I say, well, tell me what is the gospel? Because the gospel is a lot more than John 3.16. As a matter of fact, instead of my answering that question, let me let the Apostle Paul answer that question. Next slide. In Acts chapter 20, 
The Apostle Paul says, my hands are free from the blood of all men. Because I have not shown to declare unto you the whole counsel of God. The whole counsel of God goes from cover to cover. From Genesis 1-1 to the end of Revelation. But let me tell you what we do in many churches. We read our Bibles with a pair of scissors. Well, this passage of Scripture does not go in accordance with my, quote, denominational doctrine. Let's cut it out. And different denominations cut out different passages. The majority of the churches in America have cut out Romans chapter 1 because it's not politically correct. As a matter of fact, did you know that in Canada or in England, if you preach on Romans chapter 1, you'll be put in jail because it's considered hate speech. Well, let me tell you, this administration has been trying for the last six years to pass hate speech legislation. They haven't been able to, but they're itching about making speaking against homosexuality a sexual crime. As a matter of fact, let me tell you, we have seen case after case after case. If you look at Dick and Betty Odgard, Dick and Betty Odgard here in Iowa, they had a wedding chapel. They actually catered weddings. They did the flowers. They did the meals. That was their livelihood. A homosexual couple came to their chapel demanding to be married. The whole thing was a setup because it was found out later on that they had been married three months before. It was not about marriage. It was about taking down the Cambodian God. Of course, they said we cannot do that. It goes against our religious beliefs. They have lost their wedding chapel. They have lost their ministry. There's Melissa Klein in Oregon, a baker, who, a homosexual who was a client of her, had bought pastries from them for years. All of a sudden, he said, I want you to cater my marriage to my husband, another guy. And she said, I'm sorry, my friend, but I cannot do that. That goes against our religious beliefs. Melissa Klein and her husband got slapped with a civil with lawsuit. They got fined $135,000. They may lose their whole business and even their home. We have the chief of police of uh, the chief of uh, of uh, the fire chief for, uh, from Atlanta that wrote a little booklet for his Sunday school in his own time. And in about a page and a half of that book, he talks about the biblical definition of marriage. He got fired from being a police chief. This is tyranny. And this is happening all over America. You know, in Houston, Texas, we have a homosexual mayor in Houston, Texas, a woman, a lesbian. Well, she, along with city council, they passed legislation, an ordinance last year that is called the bathroom ordinance, basically stating, depending upon how you feel any day of the week, you could walk into any bathroom. So if a man felt like a woman today, he could walk into the women's bathroom. And let's suppose your daughter was in that bathroom. And she objected to it. She could be sued for violating the civil rights of that man. This is crazy. I mean, the opportunities for sexual assault is unbelievable. Well, five pastors 
decided to challenge these. They began mobilizing the church in Houston to collect signatures to put this issue on a referendum. They needed a little more than 17,000 signatures. They collected 55,000. But the mayor wouldn't have anything with, to do with that. She used all kinds of technicalities to throw out those signatures. So in response, those five pastors sued the city to force a referendum. In response to that lawsuit, the mayor subpoenaed all their sermons. Subpoenaed their sermon notes, subpoenaed any email that had to do with homosexuality or with her. There were 17 different categories in the subpoena. These five pastors said, we will not comply. Put us in jail. Well, the next day, my son calls his pastor. And he said, Pastor, I guess you, you saw what happened yesterday. And the pastor said, yes, Ted, I'm very concerned. So my son said, well, Pastor, I want to have a pastor's rally tomorrow at 11 o'clock in the morning. And I'm calling you to ask permission to do it in our sanctuary. And the pastor begins to laugh over the phone. So my son says, why are you laughing? The pastor says, you know something? About a month ago, I was talking to a series of pastors really concerned about what's happening in our city, what's happening in our nation. I have 50 pastors coming to my office tomorrow at 10 o'clock for prayer. <laughs> Only God can do that. So my son was able to go to the pastor's office at 10 o'clock and spend an hour on his knees together with his 50 pastors. At 11 o'clock, they came down to the sanctuary. At this time, there were over 500 people in the sanctuary. And those 50 pastors stood with him on the platform, and all of them said, Caesar has no jurisdiction over the pulpit. By that weekend, there was another rally with several thousand people. And then someone gets this bright idea. Why don't we begin sending Bibles to the mayor? Thousands of Bibles began descending upon the mayor. Well, I'll tell you that the pressure was so strong that the mayor rescinded his subpoena, her subpoena. I don't know if she's a he, a he or a her, you know, that's questionable. But the battle is not over. They finally got a ruling from the state Supreme Court in Texas, and that referendum will take place this month. Those pastors are mobilizing pastors around Houston to make sure that the people of God go and vote against this horrible ordinance. But they are doing something else. They are recruiting Christians, committed Christians, to run for mayor and to run for every position of city council. And if the church mobilizes, they're going to throw all those bombs out. That's what happens when we get involved in civic society. Next slide, please. Now, Jesus said, you're the light of the world. But I tell you what we do. We come to our churches with our little flashlights. Boy, are we great about pointing, pointing the light on one another, about gossiping about one another. But light is worthless unless you point it to darkness. That's out there in the marketplace. We got to stop just playing church inside the four walls while the country is going down the drain. We need to take the church out there to the marketplace. Next slide. 
Jesus also said, you're the salt of the earth. You know, salt is a preserver. But for salt to preserve anything, you have to put it upon that which you want to preserve. It is about time we fight to preserve the sanctity of life. It is about time we fight to preserve the sanctity of marriage. It is about time we fight to preserve the sexual purity of our teenagers. Now there's a message. Next slide, please. Look at Proverbs 17, 15. He who justifies the wicked and he that condemns the just, both of them are an abomination to the Lord. He that justifies the wicked. Let me ask you a question. If you're silent, are you not justifying the wicked? Silence is not an option. Next slide, please. Now here is the most common excuse of all. As a matter of fact, I'll guarantee you everyone in this room has heard that excuse. Perhaps some of you have even said it. Politics is a dirty business. I don't want any part of it. Have you heard it? It's okay if you answer me. I'm not going to ask you if you said it. Politics is a dirty business. I don't want any part of it. And you wash your hands just like Pontius Pilate. Let me give you one more scripture. Next slide. Proverbs 29.2. When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. When the wicked rule, people mourn. When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. When the wicked rule, people mourn. If the righteous are not voting, if the righteous are not even running for office, what is left? The wicked electing the wicked. And we get what we deserve if we're sitting on our rear end in our, pouch, in our, in our pews or at home in our couches watching the idiot box. Next slide. Now let me shock you a little bit. Did you know that the Bible tells you exactly who to vote for? The Bible very, very clearly tells you exactly who to vote for. Let me put it in context. Moses has just crossed the Red Sea. And now Moses is in the wilderness trying to govern over a million people. And Moses is literally going bananas. And here comes his father-in-law, Jethro. And Jethro says, Moses, what are you doing trying to judge people from morning till night? What you're doing is not good. And in Exodus chapter 18, verse 21, next slide, God speaks to Moses through Jethro. And God says, you select from among the people. Now note that God doesn't say, I will appoint. No, 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 no. You select which is the same as you elect. You want to read that again? Go to Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 13 through 16. And so you select from among the people, and then he gives four qualifications. Able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness. I'm going to repeat it. Able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness. Let's take them all one at a time. Number one, able men and women, of course. What does that mean? That means elect men and women who are capable of doing the job. Let's stop electing the village idiot. 
Number two, such as fear God. Well, if you fear God, you obey God's commands. We call that in America a Judeo-Christian ethic. What is a Judeo-Christian ethic? Well, first of all, it's a moral code of conduct depicted by the last six commandments in the Decalogue. And then it's honesty, integrity, hard work, individual responsibility, the rule of law, and yes, free enterprise and limited government. And all of those are very extensively covered in the Word of God. Able men, such as fear God. Number three, men of truth. Let me ask you a question. Aren't you sick and tired of men and women of lies in government? I mean, they tell you one lie to cover up the previous lie. And whether it is Fast and Furious or Benghazi or the IRS or the NSA or Ebola or the missing emails or Planned Parenthood is nothing but lies upon lies upon lies. Let me ask you another question. Have you ever come across a candidate for public office that will tell you all these wonderful things they're going to do only to get elected and do exactly the opposite? Anybody had that experience? Only three? <laughs> but I'll tell you, that one is easy to fix if you follow this simple rule. Stop listening to their rhetoric and start looking at their record. Stop listening to what they say. Start looking at what they do and what they have done. Jesus put it this way. Ye shall know them by their fruit. It's about time we do some fruit checking. All right? Don't listen to what they say. They'll all tell you what you want to hear. They'll all try to tickle your ears. Read chapter 6 of Jeremiah where he says, there are those that preach peace, peace when there is no peace. And God calls them false prophets. Able men, such as fear God, men of truth. Number four, hating covetousness. I'll tell you something interesting about covetousness in government. It's not primarily about money. It is about power and control. Politicians covet power and they covet the control that power gives them over we the people. That's why we have politicians in Washington that have been there for 30 years and they want to be there another 20. They do not want to relinquish that power. So now you know how to vet any candidate. Able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness. And then the Bible continues. And set them up as rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, rulers of ten. So the model you see here is Moses, rulers of thousands, rulers of hundreds, rulers of fifties, rulers of ten. That's equivalent to federal government, state government, county government, local government. Next slide, please. Verse 22. And only take up to Moses, that is to the federal government, matters of great importance. Everything else you handle yourself at the local level. That is the essence of federalism. That is the essence of limited government. That's Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution. That's the Ninth Amendment and the Tenth Amendment. Article 1, Section 8 of the Constitution is called the enumerated powers of Congress. 
18 powers described in Article 1, Section 8. If it's not there, federal government's got no business being involved in it. Let me just give you one for instance. The word marriage is nowhere in Article 1, Section 8. Federal government did ha had no jurisdiction to rule on marriage. That decision of the Supreme Court is totally unconstitutional. Let's go to the next slide. You know, you will find many of these politicians telling you all oh, the framers were a bunch of secularists. The Constitution and the Declaration are secular documents. Nothing could be further from the truth. You know, you look at the Declaration of Independence. There are 27 grievances against King George in the Declaration of Independence. Did you know that each and every one of those grievances were preached from the pulpits of America before they were written on the Declaration? For 10 years, those messages were being preached in the churches of America. It was preachers calling out King George for the atrocities the British were perpetrating upon the American people. The question is, where are those preachers today? The majority of them are hiding behind their pulpits, scared to death of losing their tax exemption. Although no church in America has ever lost its tax exemption from speaking about politics. Scared to death of being politically incorrect. Well, it is about time they are more concerned of being biblically correct instead of politically correct. Scared to death of offending someone and having people leave the church and consequently income leave the church. Well, I'll tell you what, the word has a name for that. Preachers that are more concerned with the money than with the call of God, the Bible calls them hirelings. You better be careful that you are obeying God and trying to please God instead of pleasing men. You see, actually, the American Revolution didn't really start in the 1770s. It started in the 1730s with men like Jonathan Edwards and George Whitfield 10 years later. The first great awakening and the American Revolution are totally intertwined. They're one and the same. It was the first great awakening that was the spiritual spark that ignited the revolution. And it started in the churches. As a matter of fact, let me ask you a question. Do you know where Paul Revere was going when he was going around? The British are coming. The British are coming. He was going somewhere. Next slide. He was going to the church of a pastor. A pastor by the name of Jonas Clark. As a matter of fact, you know what the first battle for our independence was, right? The Battle of Lexington. But did you know that the Battle of Lexington was fought right outside the church of Pastor Jonas Clark, and that Pastor Jonas Clark and the men of his congregation were an integral part of that militia. As a matter of fact, at the Battle of Lexington, there were eight people that died, eight colonies. Seven of them were members of Pastor Jonas Clark's church. The next battle, Battle of Concord, fought right outside the church at Concord. Again, the pastor and the men of the congregation were part of that. Next slide. Let me tell you about another pastor. His name was John Peter Muhlenberg. 
Pastor Peter Muhlenberg was a pastor in Woodstock, Virginia. He was one of many pastors that were the most feared by the British Army. British Army called them the, the Black Robe Regiment because they all wore long black robes. Pastor Peter Muhlenberg is preaching one Sunday at his church on Ecclesiastes chapter 3. He concludes his sermon with verse 8 that says there's a time for war and a time for peace. He says this is a time for war. He unbuttons his black robe and as he opens it, it uncovers his colonel's uniform in the Continental Army. He looks at his congregation and he says, how many of you men will follow me to go fight for our independence? 300 men left that Sunday with Peter Muhlenberg to go fight for our independence. You see, that's our heritage that has been erased from our history books. Next slide, please. Did you know that 29 of the 56 signers of the declaration were seminary graduates? They were men of God. They were not secularly like the administration and the media which are trying to tell you. Next slide. This is a statement by Reverend Charles Finney from the Second Great Awakening. He said, brethren, our preaching will bear its legitimate fruits. If immorality prevails in the land, the fault is ours to a great degree. If there is a decay of conscience, the pulpit is responsible for it. Now, lest those of you who are not preachers say, oh, he's not talking to me. Let me tell you something. We all have a pulpit. It may be the place where you work. It may be the place where you go to school. It may be your neighborhood. It may be your extended family. We all have a pulpit. Now, of course, the pastor has a greater responsibility because to whom much is given, much is required. Next slide. If the public press lacks moral discrimination, oh my, oh my, oh my. The public press in this country has no concern for the truth. They become mouthpieces of the administration. You know, every communist country around the world has what's called the ministry of propaganda. The, dis the dissidents call it the ministry of misinformation. Did you know we have one in this country? It's called the liberal media. Let me tell you how you can tell. Go from channel to channel and you say that you hear the same identical talking points to the word. It's like they have a script. No concern for the truth. Let me give you one clear example. When the Gosnell trial was taking place in Philadelphia, this butcher that was killing babies aborted alive by snipping their spinal cord. Clear murder. That, that uh, trial went on for two months. Total silence from the media because it doesn't promote the agenda of the administration of promoting abortion on demand. That's what the media is for us. Next slide. He said, if Satan rules the halls of legislation. Oh, wow. It sounds like we're reading this week's newspaper, doesn't it? But note that Finney doesn't blame the politicians. He says the pulpit is responsible for it. Look, look at the next one. If our politics has become so corrupt that the very foundations of our government are ready to fall away. Again, Finney doesn't blame the politicians. He says the pulpit is responsible for it. Now, why does he blame the pulpit? You'll see it in the next slide. He said, let us not ignore this fact, my dear brethren, but let us lay it to heart and be thoroughly awake to our responsibility in respect to the morals of this nation. You see, the biggest lie that we have swallowed is this. 
Politics cannot legislate morality. That is a lie. Politics legislates morality only all the time. What do you think it was when they legislated prayer out of school? When they legislated the Bible out of school? When they legalized abortion? Now when they're trying to cram down our throats, homosexual marriage and common core and all the other garbage. Is that not legislating morality? Let's go back to Proverbs 29 and 2. When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. When the wicked rule, people mourn. If the righteous are not voting, if the righteous are not running for office, all that is left is the wicked electing the wicked. And if the wicked are in authority, they will legislate their wicked brand of morality. That's what's happening in America today. The only way we reverse that is to have the righteous in authority. Let's go forward. Keep on going forward. I'm running out of time. Let's go. Next slide. Next slide. Next, next one. Let's stop there. I want to finish with five action steps. Action step number one. We need to be aware that we have a civic responsibility to be involved in the political process. Voting is our civic responsibility. I believe that every church in America needs to have a voter registration table in the lobby of their church all the time. That is not a partisan issue. You cannot be voting unless you're registered to vote. So every church in America needs to have a voter registration card, a voter registration table. Now, number two, we need to have pastors preaching the whole counsel of God. You know, George Barna did a survey just a few weeks ago. He asked a group of evangelical pastors, do you believe that the Bible addresses every issue facing America today? 90% said yes. Sounds very good until you hear the second question. Second question was, do you preach on the biblical solutions to those problems? Only 10% said yes. God help us. That means 80% of the pastors know the truth and just refuse to preach on it because it's not politically correct. Next slide. Number three, we need to encourage pastors and people of faith to run for public office. I'm involved with a group called the American Renewal Project. They're trying to recruit a thousand pastors to run for office. I have several pastors, friends of mine, that are, friend, are members of the legislature and state senators, state representatives. You know what? They're still pastoring their church. They got two advantages. Number two, they are bringing the principles of the Word of God to legislature. We need that. And number two, they have a whole congregation praying for them. Number four, we need to inform everyone about who these candidates are. Fortunately, there are dozens of Christian organizations that provide voters' guides that tell you very clearly in a graphical form how they stand on all the issues that should be important to us. And number five, make sure that you vote for men and women that uphold the principles of the Word of God. Instead of having loyalty to the party, have loyalty to the Word of God. We need to be biblically correct instead of politically correct. You know, I know people that vote for a particular party because their parents and their grandparents voted for that party. 
regardless of who is running, regardless of what that party stands for. And I'll tell you what, you better make sure you are voting in accordance with the word of God. Because God is going to hold you responsible. Because I'll tell you, what happens in the nation, it's up to us. We have a moral responsibility to elect righteous leaders. Look at 1st and 2nd Kings and 1st and 2nd Chronicles. Every time Israel or Judah had a righteous king, the whole country followed the Lord. There was revival in the land. Every time Israel or, or Judah had a wicked king, the whole country went to idolatry. There was war. There was famine. There were all kinds of problems. When the righteous are in authority, the people rejoice. When the wicked rule, people mourn. Next slide. I've run out of time. Next. Uh, there you go. You know, I want to finish with the last few words of the Declaration of Independence. Where those framers said, relying upon the protection of divine province, we mutually pledge to each other our lives, our fortunes, and our sacred honor. Our lives are under attack from the cradle to the grave. We've seen already 58 million babies killed by abortion. At the other end, it's not much better. With doctor-assisted suicide and so on and so forth, and these laws that are prevailing across the land. Our fortunes? Let me tell you, the government's got both hands in your pocket, trying to take every hard-earned dollar you make to give it out in handouts to buy votes. But I'll tell you something. They can take our lives. They may take our fortunes, but no one can take our honor. No one can take our honor. You have to surrender that yourself. You look at the horrible thing that's going in the Middle East with ISIS. ISIS is beheading Christians, men, women, and children. They're telling them, either renounce Christ or we will cut your head off. But let me tell you the story you haven't heard even once, even from a child. No, 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 no. Don't cut my head, I will renounce Christ. Not once. May we have that integrity of our faith to say, to, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. May we have the integrity of the faith to stand uncompromisingly for the word of God. Because I'll tell you what, I don't know about you, but my greatest goal in life is to one day hear from my Savior, well done, good and faithful servant. Nothing compares to that. One day, we will have to appear to our Lord. And our Lord may, you know, our whole life may pass before us. About what we did to compromise our principles in, for following the wrong loyalties. Our loyalty needs to be to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. If we do that, God will honor our faithfulness to Him. To him be all the honor, all the glory, all the power. Thank you. God bless you. God bless America. Pastor. To him be all the glory. Amen. Amen. How many, I, I, the biggest thing that I feel like, you know, the challenge for us uh, again is just individually taking what he said and and really it, it is a it's an individual call but i think one of the challenges i really felt out of this this morning um is you know and he alluded to this jesus said we are the light of the world 
Um, and we can't be looking to people who are not the light of the world to be the light of the world. If we're the light of the world, we've got to be the light of the world, and we've got to be out there shining in the darkness. We are the salt of the earth. We're, Jesus said, if, if the salt loses its flavor, it loses its ability to preserve or to do what salt is to do. He said, it's just simply thrown out. So I think the challenge for us individually, and I think our call is, are we willing to be the light of the world? However God may be calling you to be that light, are you willing to be the salt of the earth, however God is calling you to be that? And he put some challenges up there. Maybe for some of you, you've never voted or you've never registered to vote. Maybe that is one of the ways your light needs to shine forth from this this morning. Maybe some of you, like Doug Campbell, just recently ran for school board. Doug's a member of our congregation and was elected. And he's doing things there now to try to establish... And so again, maybe that's how God's calling you to shine as a, as a lighter, to be the salt of the earth. However God is calling you to be that light or to be that salt, it is your responsibility to just say, here I am, Lord, use me. And, and if we'll just all begin to commit to being the salt and the light that God is calling us to be, again, there's just, there is power in a collective response, not just here, but around the world, in our country. And so this morning, I just want to pray for you that as you kind of think about that challenge this morning of being that light of the world, being the salt of the earth, I'm just going to ask God to speak to you individually. What is he calling Thanks for listening. How is he for more information about Praise Community Church, including gathering times and events, please visit us at praisecc.org.